Screenless. Michael Price, composer, performer, beacon of the composing community, welcome to Creative Cuppa. Thank you very much. I will take beacon and uh, I will inscribe it on a t-shirt or maybe a mug for myself. Thank you. (laughs) So Michael, you started out writing scores for contemporary dance, worked your way through music editing, assisting Michael Kamen on huge Hollywood films, then music editing on more. Uh, And then came your partnership with David Arnold, uh, an altogether more British affair. Was there always a plan or did you go where the creativity took you? I think it's really interesting because we've all as people got a tendency to look backwards and to see patterns. I think we're we're almost hardwired to do that. So it's very difficult to not look back at at the experiences that I've had, which have fallen often quite neatly into five-year blocks and to presume that there was a some sort of a wall chart somewhere with some coloured stickers and, and a sharpie on there saying five years of faffing about doing contemporary dance, five years with Michael Kamen, five years of music editing, etc. But the I think my experience being inside all those experiences is much the same as I, as I think how we all go through life, which is that you have a sense of what drives you and then that internal drive sort of collides with events, with kind of external, with the rest of the world. And so I started to recognise, actually, particularly now I'm 50, that there are just certain fascinations that I've got that I feel like I've always had, and I just keep coming back to them in one shape or form. And sometimes those fascinations match up with a particular situation and then some momentum builds up. And then there are other, other times when, when they don't, when, when they're sort of not a good fit. And on an idle day, of which there are, <laughs> there are a few more at the moment, that I can look back and try and, and work out where those drives and interests came from. Were they from childhood? Were they from particular teachers or, or particular um, you know, sort of parental influences? But the, the reality of a plan is really just there's stuff that I'm drawn to. And I've always felt that if you kind of get out into the world and enable yourself to be in a place where experiences can find you, then certainly in my case, interesting things have happened. In more recent times, you scored big British dramas like Unforgotten and uh, with David Arnold, Sherlock and Dracula. How did you find those experiences maybe compared to scoring big blockbuster movies? Well, it's, it's really interesting because I think certainly when I was working with Michael Kamen as, as an assistant, which as I mentioned, was was five years of of time sort of in the trenches with him. And, and that period covered things like the first X-Men film, uh, Band of Brothers, uh, an album with Metallica in the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, just these huge, huge projects. And I, I think there was, particularly then when I went into music editing on Lord of the Rings and, and various other sort of, you know, big, expensive Hollywood films, there was a sense potentially that, that was a, a pinnacle of 
expression that that was where anybody who worked in music to picture was aiming for and and i think as with a lot of experiences in life once you've been in and inside them and been an integral part of a big hollywood film or a series of big hollywood films then the mystery of what it might be like is is broken a little it's kind of mm. is what it is there are some good bits and there's some really really horrible bits and yeah. then i actually f- found that the experience that i've had which was as earlier discussed uh, accidental with working with david arnold and and the journey that we had on sherlock in many ways was a, a more globally connected experience than I saw on the films that I worked on as an assistant or as a music editor or a programmer in that I think there's something in this new wave of long form TV, particularly the shows that get taken to the heart of, uh, of the audiences that watch them that have connected in a way that very few film experiences have apart from, you know, maybe the star Wars or Lord of the Rings itself. But the, the Sherlock experience feels like in many ways it's been a kind of on the same scale as those blockbuster films. Yes, yeah, uh, in popularity, yeah. Were you surprised by the reaction? It, entirely, as always. Confused and surprised is my sort of natural <laughs> state, really. But what became clear, I think, certainly by the second season of Sherlock was that there was a new relationship growing between TV and a social media-driven audience in that really there was a new mechanism opening up for people who enjoy the TV show to form groups and uh, communicate with each other online, which magnified their identification with a show and then with each other. It, It felt like this sort of outpouring of people who perhaps hadn't felt seen or heard before and then through their favorite tv show not just sherlock obviously there's a bunch of you know game of thrones a bunch of other shows that have have got a very um, passionate fan base david and i went to a a conference once we've only been to to one of these uh, a sherlock sherlock convention and it was really moving to see the number of people who showed up and actually what being part of that fan community for the show meant to them this this now wasn't just entertainment this was for them social connection and identification and a real sense that they weren't the only people who felt this way about the world and and i think that's been a what will probably be a a, a unique privilege for for me certainly because i think you know whatever shows or films i'm part of in the future it, it felt like sherlock was part of that first wave so it's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to be a part of. Do you find that connection then uh, helps you creatively? You know, the connection with the fans, with production teams, other composers? I think it's a very interesting question because there is always a point, and we had it on Dracula. It was because Dracula is the same team in very many departments as, as Sherlock was. So uh, Mark Gatiss, Stephen Moffat as writer and showrunners. You know, when we went to the first script read through, it, it was like a, a Sherlock reunion. So, so, so many of the same people from from production. Then there is the sort of a weight of expectation, but I think 
we all felt the same was that there's a certain point where you just have to close the door and you just have to put yourself sometimes quite deliberately into a creative place where it's just you and the story and not you and the story and triangulating to what other people might think about the story or what they might think about what you're doing. Um, and in a way, it feels like that's easier earlier on in your career because you, you haven't experienced necessarily that there's a wave of, um, <laughs> I was going to say, wave of uh, criticism stroke, uh, let, let's just call it attention, shall we say, um, on any of your work. So it's easier just to be you and your work. But I think for, for people whose, whose work has been out in public, then it's a uh, very much a definite practice of closing the door physically and mm. and mentally so that you can create and respond instinctively again. That's fantastic, yeah. So you mentioned, we talked about being connected. The current situation we find ourselves in about the coronavirus and staying indoors and lots of composers and the post-production community, work has uh, really slowed down, if not stopped. You responded really quickly with a webinar group called Coffee Break, which is on Zoom every Monday at three. Uh, so what was the thinking behind that? I, I've got a, a small amount of experience working with some of the institutions that are part of the composer communities, whether that's PRS or Ivers Academy or uh, some of our American counterparts. And my very positive experience of, of those institutions and, and uh, governmental ones as well is that there's often it's kind of we can move quicker as individuals than our institutions can sometimes and it felt like there was a a need that I felt to just reach out and have some kind of immediate forum for composers to gather around almost while our institutions could see what was going on and and, and form a, re- a response at scale. However, I think then what happens often in these situations is that actually the the sort of grassroots, quick and dirty response itself then gathers a certain momentum because of the authenticity of that. We didn't set up Composer Coffee Break with any great thinking or planning other than I, I think it really dawned on me how serious the situation was going to be, not from a medical point of view, but from a sort of a, an experiential point of view for mm. for the co- composer community on a, on a Sunday night. And so I put out a message on Twitter whether we could get together on on the Monday afternoon, sort of you know mm. uh, half a day later. And so now we've done four of them. And we get two or three hundred people on the chat room live. That's amazing. Uh, which and, and it's quite it, it's not the same as as all being in the room together, clearly, but you can almost feel as the weeks go on that we're all evolving necessary ways to communicate which give us some of what we need. So whether that is kind of factual information about schemes and help that's available or it's just banter it's yeah. just that sort of human sense of uh taking the and deflating a very 
challenging situation, sort of re- reducing the, the the sort of gallows humor that I think pretty much all professions that that involve either emotional or physical stress have seemed to develop. Kind of, you could argue almost in a weirdly positive way that the composing community has never been closer uh, because it's it's forced together, isn't it? It's a very fair point, and there were signs of that over the Christmas period when there were a couple of responses to some of the business practices of, of some of the bigger broadcasters that where the composing community did manage to get together for a moment to, to speak with one voice. I mean, what I'm hoping is, is I'm hoping that Composer Coffee Break can just stop and we can actually, because that will mean that we can go back to sitting in the bar at Abbey Road or in coffee shops and actually kind of you know, being in person and and also there's amazing work being done by the institutions in the background to to scale some of the ideas that we've kind of accidentally come up with so it's one of those projects that that i really hope will find itself joyfully redundant (laughs) (laughs) or or it'll morph again into something entirely different Yes. Well, Michael, where can listeners find you online? I, you know, I think the quickest place at the moment is Twitter, where I'm Michael <laughs> underscore underscore Price. And, Great. Uh, and it's been sort of interesting having those conversations and, and using that quick means of, uh, of connecting together with, with new people. So yeah, yeah. Send, send me a comedy message. We need, we need all the laughs <laughs> we can get Fantastic. right now. Fantastic. I'll put all your other links in the show notes as well. But for now, Michael Price, thank you ever so much for joining me for a cuppa. Thanks, Gareth.